Now, we're trying to get through the Gospel of John before Easter. Um, we were going to read John chapter 12. We're going to read John chapter 11 now. We were going to read John chapter 12 as well, but we feel that it is, is quite a long chapter. And we would ask that you read John chapter 12 during the week. It's an important chapter because it's uh, about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. His uh, triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But today we're going to read from chapter 11. And this is entitled The Death of Lazarus. And it says this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then, sent, and then said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone lid across the entrance, a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad over, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus was no longer moved, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they may go and arrest him.
Thanks, Kevin. Words in yellow on the PowerPoint come up on the sermon notes. The sermon notes are on the, uh, the windowsills. There's a few spare down here if you want to come and catch one. Um, while I'm saying that, I've got a spare copy of this. If somebody wants it. It's called Bible Doctrine. This is the book we're doing at Illuminate. Um, the, one that, the one I've got isn't as thick as this, so don't worry. It's not really as big as it looks. That's what I'm saying. It just must, must be thick paper, this version. Um, so if you want to come a copy of that, come let me know. Today, really, because um, I have to send it back to Barry otherwise. But John 11, one of my favourite chapters, I think, in the whole Bible. So much, so much in it. And as you might imagine, to come back to it, come back to it fairly regularly. Um, quite often, use parts of John 11 in the, in the context of a funeral. Not surprisingly. But today, I think we need to think of it like this. It's decision time. It's decision time. We're coming to a sort of end of one of the big sections of John's gospel. The next bit, um, Jesus is heading into uh, Jerusalem. Get the triumphal entry. You can read chapter 12 on your own. And uh, he's coming into the last weeks of his life. But for now, it's decision time, part one. So John says at the end, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so by the end of this morning, actually, we will have seen all the seven signs. You know, there are seven I am statements and seven signs in John's gospel. What do you reckon? Where have you got to? Water into wine, healing the official's son, man at the pool, remember him, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the blind man, now raising Lazarus from the dead. What do you decide? What is your conclusion? John wants to give you these seven signs. He's laid them out in front of you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So back on Thursday night, we... uh, uh, we were looking at the blind man and um, came upon this uh, famous quote from C.S. Lewis about who is Jesus? He's either a lunatic, he's either mad, he's bonkers, or he's a charlatan, or he's God incarnate. And as C.S. Lewis says, you can shut him up as a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So you've got seven signs. You've got time for a preliminary decision about who Jesus is. Who is he? What is your response? And it seems today that uh, the, with this seventh sign that the I am statements have sort of hit a high note as well. Um, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And it seems to kind of pick up all those other things that he's been saying about being the bread of life, about providing water, um, about being the gate, about being the, the shepherd. They're all kind of come to a drawn together in this one thought, I'm the resurrection and the life. But, but what is this eternal life? I want us to stop and, and take a look. Jesus, if you will look this up in a concordance, I think Jesus 
mentions the phrase eternal life 10 times, I count. Maybe wrong, but um, in my version, 10 times uh, up to this point. Jesus talks about eternal life, or he talks about life in his name, or he talks about life in all his fullness. But what is it? So I think it's time for us to stop and take a look. So you might say, what's eternal life? You might think, well, eternal life is life that goes on forever, isn't it? Well, you already have life that goes on forever. Did you know that? You are body and soul. You have an immortal self. God has given you a life that will go on forever. The immaterial part of you carries on beyond death, whether you're a Christian or not. So that's not eternal life. You might say, okay, well, resurrection, eternal life, maybe it's resurrection to a bodily life when Jesus returns. Well, in fact, everybody's going to be raised to a bodily life when Jesus returns, Christian or not. So when we're talking about eternal life, the stress is not on the eternal. Stress is when you experience eternal life or whether you experience eternal death. Or you might say, well, isn't eternal life about God living with us? Well, in a sense, God already is with us because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent, we say. Father, Son, and Spirit are always present together and they're always present everywhere. So what does it mean? And I think this statement by Don Carson is really helpful, that the essence of eternal life is having moved from God's condemnation to his acceptance. The essence, it sounds strange, doesn't it, at first? But the more you think about it, I think the more you realize that's true. The essence of eternal life is that you've moved from God's condemnation to God's acceptance. So we say that God has come to live within us, and he has. But what we mean is that the God who was already there has turned his personal attention to you. And it has made it his personal intention to be good to you. The God who is always present everywhere has decided to be present with you to bless and to change you and to move you. And at the same time, of course, God makes, when we receive eternal life, God makes our spirits new so that we're responsive to that new action of God that's going on. So eternal life, it's a new spirit within you, but in a sense, it's a, it, it's a change of um, attitude, if we can say that, in the Lord to make his presence felt with you and to you and to put his loving eye upon you. It's one of the psalmists talks about God having his loving eye upon you and I think that's right. And that's why we can say that eternal life um, starts now because the Lord accepts you because you've trusted in the death and the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf and you've moved from being under his wrath to being under his love. That's eternal life. Where is it to be found? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it, from today, from the reading. It's there. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, do you believe this? And what does Martha say? I know he will rise again, verse 24, in the resurrection at the last day. So either she's got a Jewish expectation, which they had of, uh, of a resurrection beyond death, or at least some of them did. Pharisees believed this. The Sadducees didn't. 
Or maybe Jesus has already given them some teaching. So she thinks, you know, there will be a resurrection from the dead. Jesus insists that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the, the place where you get it. If, you, if we can put it in that kind of language. He is the achiever. He is the purchaser of your right to life, your right to eternal life. Actually, he's not so much the purchaser as he is the purchase price. He is the ransom payment as he lays down his life. Jesus is the price of your resurrection and life. But he's also the giver of life. Remember in Acts 2, Peter said, this is Jesus exalted to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and he's poured out on you what you now see and hear. How do you get this eternal life? You come to Jesus. You thank him for laying down his life as the ransom price. You pray to him for forgiveness. You ask him for the new life of the Holy Spirit within you. But you worship him as Lord. So that much, I hope that's straightforward. What is eternal life? It's life under God's blessing. It's life with God's loving eye upon you. Where is it found? It's found in Christ. The third question for today is, what is it like? And I want to ask this question, really. What is it like to have eternal life, have life with Christ when you face bereavement? Can't really go through this passage without asking that question. What is it like? What is is a Christian life like in, in times of sorrow? And we have to accept that there are times when God seems to delay. Jesus, in this passage, deliberately delays going to to Bethany. There are times in our lives where you want God to act, and you want him to act now, um, and he doesn't. And one writer said, "God God is the creator of time. He's never late for his appointments. A bit like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. Um but more so. Um, But it doesn't always seem that from our point of view. So this is an important little passage, really, about God's delays. So Jesus delays going to Bethany. And the upshot is, so I'm not going to go into detail on that because you'll have read this passage before. We've preached it before. But the upshot is, when he arrives, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. So... The, the, the soul has definitely left the body. There were some traditions that the soul hung around for three days. He's late for four days. Uh, G, uh, Lazarus is definitely dead. The, the, the soul has legged it. The time acceptable for a visitor to stay, which was three days, a day to come, a day to stay, and a day to go away. That time has gone. It's passed. The time of decomposition, the smelly stage has started. By all human terms, he is late. He is too late. And some of the people say, if, he, if he'd been here, couldn't he have healed him? Which, of course, he could. But let's look at what Jesus says before he goes. He says to them, this illness will not end in death. He said that in verse 4. 
It's cryptic, but it's true. But he's told the outcome from the beginning, if the disciples had chosen to keep that in mind. Second thing he says, he says it's for God's glory. Not God's need to show off, but it's for God to be able to reveal something more of himself to his disciples than they have seen before. Second thing. Third thing, he says it's about love. It's done out of love. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Says that too. And Jesus says it was better for him not to be there so that you may believe it's for the strengthening of their faith. Specifically, their faith that Jesus has authority over death. So four things Jesus says. Um, Thomas is, as an aside, Thomas's comment is worth noting. As Thomas's comments are always worth noting. It's a little bit of light relief. Um, Thomas, also known as Didymus, said, let us also go so we may die with him. I think he's the sarcastic one. He might be the heroic one, but I don't think so. I think he's the, uh, oh, yeah. But we have here then a paradigm for dealing with what looks like the Lord's delays. And the first thing is to remember what God's stated intent is. Okay? Is there some prior commitment of God to you that you may have forgotten? Yes, probably. What are the promises of God to you in Scripture to grow you and to love you and to care for you, to be with you always, lead you beside quiet waters, restore your soul? So sometimes in the delays we forget that God has already stated his intent. His intent is to be good to us. And we need to remember that in times of delays. Second thing is that God has a plan for revelation. God's plans are always the best plan for him to reveal more of himself to you. Sometimes hard to hold on to in the middle of waiting, isn't it? But, but the waiting ultimately will mean that when God shows himself, it will be the best way of him revealing more of his glory to you. Third thing is it's done out of love. That's hard to hold on to, isn't it? When you're waiting for something that it's done out of love. It's done out of love to you and for you. Of course, it's done out of complete knowledge as well, which we don't have. And the fourth thing is done, it's done to strengthen your faith. It's done to strengthen your faith. Faith, when it's tested, it gets stronger than it was before. So I think there are four little helpful things there for when you're waiting for God to ask. But that doesn't mean that you can't ask with the psalmists. Psalm 4, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Or Psalm 10, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Arise, Lord. In other words, get up, Lord, and do something. Psalm 12, help, Lord, for no one's faithful anymore. Psalm 13, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? 
These four things don't mean that you can't cry out with the psalmist. In fact, you must cry out um, with the psalmist. And what happens to the psalmist at the end is that as he cries out, these things percolate back through his memory, these four things. And he remembers that there is a good God who's looking out for him. So even within having eternal life, Jesus delays, or God sometimes delays, he makes us wait to grow in our knowledge of him. Uh, the second thing, I guess, particularly in the, the context of, of death and bereavement, is that Jesus is moved. Jesus is, is moved by death. Well, by, I think one of the things we see in this passage, perhaps more clearly than anywhere else, is, is Jesus' um, emotions. From verse 28 onwards, he, he calls, calls Mary to come out. Mary reached the place where Jesus was. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jesus who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply in moved, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved in spirit. And, and I, think they, um, I think it's right that that actually should be translated, he, he was angry. People try to avoid that translation, but he was angry. And as far as I can tell, the word troubled means he shook. Jesus comes, um, comes to this, this bunch of grieving people. And he's angry. Oh boy, is he angry. So angry he could shake at the... Why? Some people say he's angry at the lack of faith. I think that's a bit harsh. I think he's angry about death. I think he's angry about death. I think he's deeply angered that death has entered into the Lord's very good creation, the creation which he had, of course, his hand in. Just angry that death had to, had to be there. Angry that death comes in and causes this anguish and I think when you stand by a coffin particularly if someone you know but at any point I think you get a sense that this is deeply wrong something wrong here this is unnatural it shouldn't be like this and I think that's right death came into creation because of sin It's a deeply unnatural thing. Jesus feels like you do when you stand at a funeral and, and look at the coffin and think this is deeply unnatural, but he, but he feels that magnified a thousand times. If it's unnatural to us, if it seems wrong, it's offensive then to him as the creator of life. And then in verse 34, he says, uh, he says where have you laid him? Come and see, they replied. And Jesus wept. Jesus weeps with love, with compassion, with empathy. Why does he weep? Because he feels the pain of Mary, surely. He feels the pain that she's going through. 
So what it is, in this time of, which maybe it's a time of waiting, or it's a time of pain, and Jesus, Jesus is deeply moved by it. He's not inured to it. Is that the right word? He's not immune to it. He's not unfeeling. He feels it. And it brings him great sadness. And that's that's reassurance for those of us who are waiting or for those of us who grieve. Grieve not like the rest of humanity who have no hope, Paul will say. But we grieve knowing that Jesus is against death. He knows that. And we grieve knowing that Jesus weeps with us. Next thing Jesus does is he prays out loud. He asks for the, for the stone at the front of the cave to be removed. And now that she's got here, that faith that maybe Martha has, I know that he'll rise again as wavered, and she says instead, it's going to smell. It's going to smell really bad. Um, and then Jesus prays. Strangely, they took away the stone. What does Jesus do? Lazarus come out? No. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Oh. So before he says Lazarus come out, Jesus, Jesus prays. Why does he do that? To show that he is the son of the father who is God, yes. But also to show that the father always hears the son. Father always hears the son and answers. Is that what it says? I know that you always hear me. Father always answers the prayers of the son. To the extent that when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus comes out. And then there's an embarrassing bit about you have to take the grave clothes off. He'd be wrapped in a sheet, would have been tied off then at the hands and, and the feet and, they, and a separate thing on his head and they have to untie him and let him go. Why does it matter that the father always hears the son? Because Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus always lives to intercede for you. The son, whose prayers are always answered, prays to the father for you. For you, so that you are saved completely. So that your salvation is completed. So that you are secure. What an amazing truth. The son whose prayers are always answered is praying for you. Even now, I would guess. Unless he has a little rotor. But you're on his prayer list and he prays for you. And we pray to the Father, don't we, in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. But to come in the name of Jesus, in a sense, is to come um, 
to piggyback on this uh, authority, this, um, this assurance that Jesus has, that his prayers are heard by the Father. And when we pray in Jesus' name, we're kind of piggybacking on Jesus. Um, Jesus' certain heardness of the Father. When we pray in Jesus' name, he takes our prayers, as it were, and the Son who is always heard takes those prayers presents them to the Father. I reckon he does some judicious editing along the way so that they were better prayers than we framed them. But it's amazing, isn't it? And then finally, the, the Sanhedrin unwittingly um, play along in verse 45. You read that thing about Caiaphas. They're worried about their position. It's amazing, isn't it? They've seen somebody raised from the dead, and yet they're more worried about their social and political standing. And one of them, um, 49, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, you don't know nothing at all. You don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And, and John says, he unwittingly prophesies Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not just for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So ironically, they're trying to squash Jesus. Ironically, they advance his agenda, which is to die for the people. Jesus is always in control. So to sum up, it's decision time, part one. Okay. With the end of the seven signs, what, what do you reckon? On a scale of 1 to 10, how convinced are you that Jesus is the Son of God? Put a number on it. Seriously. In your mind, put a number on it. How convinced do you need to be to take the plunge of trusting him for eternal life? What do you reckon? Is that a different number? And what is stopping you from taking the plunge and trusting him for eternal life? If you've never done that. Second question, well, second group of people to address. If you've already taken the plunge, if you're a Christian, how much of the eternal life described by John on the scale of 1 to 10 are you experiencing? Life to the full. Well of life, water is it? Uh, this water of life, the spirit welling up into you, the spring of life. Just be really honest, it's just for you. But maybe the answer to that question relates to the final question how much of your life have you trusted to Jesus? In other words, how much of your life does Jesus have? It's not how much of Jesus do you have, because you can have all of him. You can have as much as you want of him. But how much of you does Jesus have? It's decision time. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in these book, 
But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want life. We want that life. We want that Holy Spirit welling up in us as a spring of life. We want that life to the full. We want that promise. This is a life where God looks on us as his children with love and ready to bless. We want that life. Don't want to be in some kind of deathly routine. A deathly rut. So we pray, even today, give us new life in Christ. Pray that Jesus will have more of us than he's had before. And Lord, for those of us waiting on Christ, please encourage us with the things we've, we've talked about today. Those of us hurting encourage us with the fact that Jesus knows and feels. And for those who are out of control, encourage us with the fact that Jesus is always in control. We just thank you, Father, that because of the Son, you look on us with love. And that's the essence of eternal life. Amen. Going to sing. What are we going to sing? Let's down. Let's sing a couple. We've got a bit of time to go over because of obviously the bit of a switch over in the room behind. So uh, we'll just do a couple responses. <laughs> In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. Where fears are stilled, where striving ceases, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless pain. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. 
Till on that cross as Jesus has died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live There in the ground His body lay Light of the world by darkness slain Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, such cast as lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me, from last first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, no power of hell, no scheme of man, can his hand till he returns me home here in the power of the no power of hell no scheme of a man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I stand. How great the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain i could not climb in desperation i turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul The work is finished, the end is written Jesus Christ, my living home Who could imagine so great a mercy What a heart could fathom Such boundless grace 
the God of ages step down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken I am forgiven the King of kings calls me his own beautiful Savior I'm yours forever Jesus Christ my living Lord so hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living hope then came the morning that sealed the promise your very body began to break out of the silence the roaring lion the grave has no claim on me. Then came the morning. Then came the morning. It sealed the promise. Your very body began to breathe out of the silence. The roaring lion declared the grave as no claim. has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have a broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope jesus christ my living hope god you are my living hope Let me close in prayer. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain, there's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Heavenly Father, we sing these words of praise and thanksgiving to you.
Because of Jesus' sacrifice and what you have done for us, we are unshackled and free to live without condemnation. What an amazing gift of love. I ask that you continue to bless each of us as we go from here today and grant us the opportunities to share your name. And may all the glory be yours. Amen.